This week on Friday Night History, what happens when your only language in common is a tenuous grasp of Dutch? Salutations, you fantastic denizens of the internet! This is Dr. Nairi A. Bakalian, and you are listening to Friday Night History, your favorite historical romp with your favorite history dyke. The Shove Heard Round the World Over the last couple episodes, we've been looking at the mission of Captain James Glynn and the USS Preble as it factored into the sojourn of Ronald McDonald. Glynn's mission was ostensibly to rescue castaways in Japanese custody, but also to press the issue of initiating U.S.-Japan trade and diplomatic relations. This was in 1849, and... It was the immediate antecedent to the Perry mission of 1853-54. Glynn, however, was not the first U.S. naval officer to attempt to single-handedly open U.S.-Japanese relations before Commodore Perry. Enter the mission of the lesser-known Commodore James Biddle, 1783-1848. He's certainly not as well-known as Perry or Glynn, but his visit to Japan has an important place in history all the same— particularly with regard to the growth of Japanese naval technology. Now, speaking as a Philadelphian, I sighed knowingly when I first encountered his name. Biddle, like Logan, Callowhill, Bond, Norris, Sellers, Penn, is a very old Philadelphia family. That a Biddle was a Commodore in the Antebellum Navy does not come as a surprise to me at all. He was the nephew of Captain Nicholas Biddle, one of the first five captains in the U.S. Navy, and the younger Biddle had a very eventful career, both as a naval officer as well as a diplomat. During the war against the Barbary Pirates, 1801 to 1805, he was assigned to the USS Philadelphia under the command of Captain William Bainbridge. When the crew was captured following the ships running aground off Tripoli Harbor, he spent the war in captivity in Tripoli. Later, he took part in the War of 1812. Later still, he served on various American fleets throughout the world in both a military and diplomatic capacity. Biddle was in the Mediterranean in 1830 when he and Consul David Offley negotiated and concluded a treaty with the Sublime Port, the government of the Ottoman Sultan, which established trade relations with the Ottoman Empire and guaranteed American extraterritoriality in the empire. Long story short, by the time he was commander of East India Squadron, the U.S. Navy's main formation operating in East Asian waters, he was an accomplished commander and diplomat. Shortly after his arrival in China, Biddle added another success to that lengthy career when he exchanged ratifications of the Treaty of Wangxia in December of 1845, the first treaty signed between the U.S. and the Qing dynasty. China under the Qing had recently been defeated by the United Kingdom, and the other Euro-American powers were quickly lining up to make their own unequal treaties with the vanquished empire. But Biddle and the American diplomats in China were also aware that Japan was nearby and might at this juncture also be militarily unable to resist overtures by a Western power. Indeed, 
Biddle carried a letter with him from then-Secretary of State John C. Calhoun, which authorized Caleb Cushing, U.S. agent in China, to open diplomatic negotiations with Japan. At the time, Biddle's flagship was the 90-gun ship-of-the-line USS Columbus, Captain Thomas Wyman commanding, which was accompanied by the Boston-class sloop-of-war USS Vincennes, under the command of Captain Hiram Paulding. Word reached the squadron on 5 July 1846 of war with Mexico. Charles Nordhoff, who was a sailor aboard the USS Columbus, writes that, quote, On the 5th of July, our consort vessel returned from Shanghai with the Commodore, who brought with him an official report of the declaration of war between the United States and Mexico, news which we had been for some time expecting. We immediately proceeded to sea, bound for Japan, our Commodore having been entrusted by government with the delivery of a letter from the President of the United States to the Emperor of Japan, expressing a desire to open negotiations for a treaty of trade. In his later report to Secretary of the Navy, Seknav George Bancroft, Biddle reported, The Japanese, as you know, have always been more rigid in the exclusion of foreigners than even the Chinese. The only Europeans admitted to trade are the Dutch from Batavia, and their trade is confined to a single port and limited to one annual ship. By the laws of Japan, foreign ships are not permitted to anchor in any port of the empire except that of Nagasaki. Any attempt to penetrate Japan made at that port would be sure to encounter the hostility of the Dutch, whose exertions have hitherto been successful against every attempt to disturb their monopoly. The Japanese officers at Nagasaki are without authority to treat foreign officers. They could, on they could not accede to any propositions. They could only transmit them to the seat of government at Edo. The distance between Edo and Nagasaki is 345 leagues, and the journey between them is usually performed in seven weeks, according to a work on Japan published at New York in 1841. I concluded, therefore, to proceed direct to the Bay of Edo, where I anchored on the 20th instant with the Vincennes in company. In other words... Having scored an unequal treaty with China and hearing of the outbreak of war with Mexico, Biddle thought he could go to Japan and go straight to Edo to avoid attracting the ire of the Dutch, snag a different treaty with Japan, and then smoothly pivot and head across the Pacific to join the war. Easy, right? Not so much. Here's the thing. Japan was no stranger to the increasing presence of international ships in its waters, especially whalers. With the development and expansion of steam vessels, this only increased. Dutch, French, British, Russian, and American vessels all wound up in Japanese waters with increasing frequency. This wasn't a problem they could just legislate away. The isolation policy hadn't fundamentally changed since the 17th century, although there had been some relaxing of restrictions pertaining to the import of European books. Even if they came from countries whose entry into Japan was barred, the knowledge within was still of use. This became the backbone of what was called Rangaku, Dutch studies, although the name could refer to the study of any European language, technology, medicine, or discipline. All the same, by the early to mid-19th century, the ships weren't going away, and there was a range of opinions as to how to deal with them. Some, like the powerful Mito domain of eastern Japan, advocated for the armed repulsion of any foreign vessel on sight. 
Others, like the Otsuki family, powerful scholars and doctors serving the House of Date in northern Japan, argued for a limited opening of Japan to foreign trade, particularly in the north, with an eye toward better understanding Russia. Indeed, eventually Sendai under the House of Date became the first clan in Japan to include a Russian studies curriculum in its domain school, the school where its samurai were trained. So with all of this understood, what it boils down to is that foreign vessels, foreign ideas, foreign weapons of the 1840s were not strange, otherworldly, magical things to Japan. And this informed how the shogunate responded shortly after Biddle's little flotilla, the warships Columbus and Vincennes, arrived at Uraga at the entrance of what's now Tokyo Bay on 20 July 1846. And by shortly, I mean that they saw these ships coming, and there was an officer who came aboard before the American warships even reached their anchorage. As Biddle reported to Seknav Bancroft, Before reaching the anchorage, an officer with a Dutch interpreter came on board. He inquired what was my object in coming to Japan. I answered that I came as a friend, to ascertain whether Japan had, like China, opened her ports to foreign trade, and if she had, to fix by treaty the conditions on which American vessels should trade with Japan. He requested me to commit this answer to writing, and I gave him a written paper, a copy of which is herewith transmitted. He informed me that any supplies I might require would be furnished by the government. To my inquiry whether I would be allowed to go on shore, he replied in the negative. He objected to our boats passing between this ship and the Vincennes, but, as I insisted upon it, he yielded. Quite the entrance. The week that followed saw the American sailors receiving Japanese visitors aboard both vessels. Both crews took soundings of the Japanese waters around their anchorage and passed unrestricted from one ship to the other, but were shadowed by shogunate patrol craft that kept a tight cordon, as well as troops of Oshi and Kalagoya domains, which kept watch from the adjoining shoreline. Both Biddle's official report and Charles Nordhoff's later memoir note that a Quite a few Japanese regularly visited the two American warships, and that the interactions were, on the whole, amicable. Shogunate officials also regularly visited, continuing discussions with Biddle while the latter's letter traveled up Shogunate channels. Despite their firm refusal to let Americans actually land, they were unamenable to supplying the ships with fresh water and other needed provisions. On the 27th, an answer finally arrived from what Biddle calls the Emperor, but was in fact the Shogun. The emissary came with an entourage of eight people, including an interpreter. Initially, he wanted them to come aboard, but eventually agreed to come aboard the shogunate vessel that had drawn up alongside Columbus. But on trying to board, one of the guards on the Japanese vessel misinterpreted Biddle's intentions and shoved him back into the Columbus's launch, drawing his own sword. A short, sharp crisis ensued. Biddle returned to Columbus, calling for the man to be punished. Japanese officials followed, working out the nature of the misunderstanding and how to punish the man who'd drawn his sword. Ultimately, the problem at its root was exacerbated by neither side having a language in common, other than a mutually tenuous grasp of Dutch. With this in mind, Ronald McDonald's later work in English language instructor instruction had an outsized influence on smoothing future U.S.-Japanese diplomatic relations. The shove aside... 
The shogunate's message, as quoted by Biddle, was this. According to the Japanese laws, the Japanese may not trade except with the Dutch and Chinese. It will not be allowed that America make a treaty with Japan or trade with her, as the same is not allowed with any other nation. Concerning strange lands, all things are fixed at Nagasaki, but not here in the bay. Therefore, you must depart as quick as possible and not come any more in Japan. Chastened, Biddle told shogunate officials that having ascertained that Japan was not interested in trade, he would withdraw as soon as he could make sail. So, having taken on fresh provisions and with a tow from Japanese rowboats, the flotilla sailed from Edo Bay on the 29th. Charles Nordhoff recollects that, Accordingly, the anchor was weighed, the sails set, and the two long hawsers passed over the bows to the waiting boatmen who, fastening to these and to each other's craft when the hawsers would no longer reach them, soon towed us out to the entrance of the bay, when, taking the breeze, the boats cast off, and amid waving of fans and hats, we bade goodbye to Japan. Vincennes remained on station in East Asia, while Columbus, with Biddle aboard, headed east to join the war. There was no treaty, but there were plenty of reports, first of which was Biddle's official account sent to the Secretary of the Navy, Bancroft, dated 31 July. Accounts of this abortive slapdash attempt at gunboat diplomacy that ended with a shove would influence later U.S. attempts. I talked recently about James Glynn's 1849 mission to Japan, and the 1853 mission of Matthew C. Perry is renowned worldwide for better and worse. Both men benefited from the unlikely influence of Ronald McDonald, and both were aware of the events of the Biddle mission, and seeking to scrupulously avoid the same mistakes, neither commander let himself be in a position where he could get shoved, and especially by use of increasing amounts of naval firepower to compel compliance. But Biddle's visit had an impact in Japan, too, in ways he likely didn't anticipate, and for that... Our story continues. So, to recap, Commodore James Biddle's slapdash attempt at gunboat diplomacy in the summer of 1846 failed. It was hampered especially by the fact that neither the U.S. personnel nor the Japanese officials had anything in common for communication beyond a mutually tenuous grasp of Dutch. After a polite but awkward encounter that went nowhere substantive and included Bill getting shoved, the little flotilla left Japan empty-handed and the ships went their separate ways. Now, their experience would inform later missions, Glynn's in 1849, Perry's in 1853-54, but that was not all. It prompted a wave of discussion on military reform and naval design that was well underway by the time Japan was quote-unquote opened in 1853. Long story short, to say that simply that Perry opened Japan without rounding out our appreciation of how much innovation, adaptation of foreign technology, awareness of world trends, and action to be ready for them was already underway in Japan in response to foreign incursion by the time Perry showed up is to do a disservice to the facts. This, the shogunate officials in Uraga in the aftermath of Biddle's visit, is where our story begins. That the U.S. warships had the technological edge, especially in firepower, was beyond doubt. As ocean-going vessels, they were also bigger than anything Japan had at the time. And of course, the Japanese authorities knew this, and sought solutions about how to face the challenges of foreign incursions that were only increasing, including at Uraga, at the entrance of Tokyo Bay. 
Enter the office of the Uraga Magistrate. Uraga Bugyosho in Japanese. An, an administrative entity of the Tokugawa government. That part of the shore around Uraga, part of modern Yokosuka, Kanagawa Prefecture, was a direct holding of the shogun and the Uraga Magistrate, Uraga Bugyo, at times a title shared by two people, as it was after Biddle's visit in 1846, was a position aimed at overseeing boat inspection as well as life-saving operations at the mouth of Edo, Tokyo Bay, established in 1720. However, as time wore on, its role increasingly had necessarily involved intercepting foreign vessels that came close to Edo Bay and thus posed a potential national security threat to the shogun and the seat of government. And it was the vessels and personnel under the command of the Uraga magistrate's office that intercepted Biddle's little flotilla. Biddle comments that the Japanese boats were able to surround his ships but posed no real threat, and that the Japanese authorities were, of course, just as aware of this. The ships in service of the Uraga magistrate were, for the most part, old and small in 1846. While things were successfully de-escalated and Biddle did in fact leave, this in turn prompted shogunate naval construction efforts that soon followed the Biddle mission. The tangible result of these efforts was the hybrid warship Soshun Maru. Built on the model of a sloop, on the pattern of and on observations of the Vincennes, but modified to be a hybrid Japanese Western warship, it was the first and foremost of Japan's new wave of naval construction. While another school of thought emphasized coast artillery, and indeed many coast artillery batteries were built, that would only go so far. Odaiba in Tokyo, which still bears the name Odaiba, or the battery, is one of them. The shogunate, during the reign of Tokugawa Ieyoshi, 1793-1853, ruled 1837-1853, and the chief counselorship of Abe Masahiro, 1819-1857, in office 1843-1855, understood that something had to be done, though the national seclusion policies were left unchanged, and so the construction of Soshun Maru went ahead, Kiel laid 22 April 1849, launched 9 August 1849, under the supervision of the Uraga Magistrate, and it became one of several such hybrid sloops that were used either by the Uraga Magistrate Office or the feudal domains assigned to Coast Guard duty in the area, most notably the powerful Hikone Domain and Aizu Domain. They were in service when Commodore Perry arrived, and as I've noted elsewhere, the Dutch government had advised the shogunate in advance that Perry was coming. A far cry from the impression in some quarters that the Japanese government was entirely unprepared and entirely without military modernization projects underway on Perry's arrival. Simultaneously, domains from as far afield as Saga, Satsuma, and Sendai all set about their own efforts at modernized shipbuilding in the interest of building their own naval capabilities to put in both their own service and to second to the shogunate as needed. Thus, we can see that Japan was not simply a passive subject of Perry's gunboat diplomacy, but rather had and exercised plenty of agency in facing it, despite its preparations still being inadequate. The onus is on us, the modern scholars and readers, to account for this rather than erase it. But the story doesn't end here. Soshun Maru was lost when the Uraga Magistrate's headquarters burned in 1853. The magistrates, there were two at the time, 
petitioned the shogun in August of 1853 to allow for the construction of new warships to replace it. And thus the magistrate's subordinates built Ho-Maru, keel laid 22 October 1853, launched 6 June 1854, the first entirely Western-style modern warship in Japanese service. A leader on this project was Nakajima Saburosuke, a senior shogunate official attached to the office of Uraga Magistrate. Nakajima and his subordinates not only completed Ho-Maru in record time, but also sailed it up the coast to Shinagawa, now Shinagawa City of Tokyo Metropolis, and showed it off to the shogun's senior officials, including the senior council led by Abe. This demonstrated that building Western-style vessels was indeed within Japanese means and useful for the national defense, and that it would be valuable to hire foreign specialists and buy foreign military equipment to further bolster those capabilities. It thus became one of the early vessels of the modern shogunate navy. To learn more about the shogunate navy and other American influence on its development, take a listen to my episode of the Preble Hall podcast. In turn, Nakajima and several other Uraga Magistrate Office officials were sent to Nagasaki upon the establishment of the Shogunate Naval Academy there in 1855. This academy moved to Tsukiji in Edo in 1859, now roughly the site of Tsukiji Fish Market, became the forerunner of the Imperial Japanese Navy Academy, which was moved to Etajima in Hiroshima many years later, and became in turn the forerunner of the modern... Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force Academy, which is still at Etajima. This, friends, is how the Japanese response to James Biddle's slapdash diplomacy was one current that set in motion Japanese military modernization, and all that before Perry even showed up. In short, by 1853, the shogunate was underprepared, but not unprepared. Again... I think it behooves us to factor that into our appreciation of the Perry mission. And that is the story of the shove heard around the world. I'm Nairi, and this has been Friday Night History. Now, questions? Friday Night History is a weekly historical romp with me, your favorite history dyke, Dr. Nairi A. Bakalian. Our theme is Buga Blue, written by Craig Friedrich, performed by the U.S. Army Blues, available royalty-free at pixabay.com music. To support my work, sign up today at patreon.com slash riversidewings. That's all for this week of Friday Night History. Next week, The Mustache of Destiny, a new technology a visionary general, and the mutton chops to end all mutton chops. Hope to see you there. And remember, who you are and what lights your fire is worth fighting for. I'll see you around.